This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Annie Howe, who is the SVP of Data Science, Data and Technology for Group M. So Annie, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Kyle, for having me. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Um, I've been listening and I've been really, it's been really great up until for, from everything I've heard. Good, good. Well, I appreciate the the feedback um, and looking forward to the conversation. Um, obviously, as you'll know, where we start is we always ask our guests to um, give a, a brief intro into themselves because I can never do that justice. So, um, so, so, so yeah, give us a brief introduction into your background and I guess journey to date and kind of what you're up to now. Perfect. Um, so my name is Annie Howe, as Kyle said. I currently lead the data science practice at Group M Data and Tech. Um, prior to that, I was the head of data science at Sandtable, which was a data science consultancy which focused on behavioral analytics um, and a technique called agent-based modeling. So my data science career, I think, has been quite a bit of uh, a unique one, as I specialized quite early on, almost from the beginning of my of my career, um, focusing on one technique and one sort of application. But um, Prior to data science, I was an academic. I think that's normally the path of most data scientists. So I did a PhD and a postdoc in observational cosmology. Um, that was done in Canada, where I'm originally from. And then I did a postdoc in Korea. Um, it was a four-year postdoc, which I only lasted seven months for, because I quickly realized that it wasn't the right career choice for me. And I think that was kind of five, six years ago when data science was really picking up um, as a field, as I'm sure you know. Um, and it also gave me, like, I guess, a bit of hope, because the thing I loved about my PhD was tackling a problem and then working with data, which, of course, data science allows you to do. So it seemed like a very natural career path that gave me stability and a bit more choice in my in my choice of uh, location of living. <laughs> um, so that that's kind of where I started and where I am now. Um, at Group M Data and Tech, I'm focusing not just on one technique. So I'm covering a wide range of methodologies. So our, we, we spend the whole sort of analytics ladder from analytics to data science, to AI, to, um, to simulations as well. And we're covering sort of the, the span of media planning. So all the things media we'd like to help with. <laughs> yeah, nice. And I guess just for context for the listener, you're London-based, right? You know, here in the UK yes. now? Yeah, okay. Just thought it'd be good to mention that because obviously I speak to people from all over the world and uh, right. with the accent, they, they may think that you're, you're based over the other side of the pond. So um, so yeah, okay, perfect. So obviously Group M, a company that I'm very familiar with and the brands that you work within. So just give the listener very briefly for those who don't know Group M, kind of a, a very brief overview of, Group M, what you guys do, and I guess where you sit in that from a wider group perspective and how that kind of, you know, distills into the brands, I guess. Sure. Um, so for those who don't know, Group M is essentially a combination of 
five global media agencies. So Mindshare, Mediacom, Wavemaker, Essence, and M6. But it's also a combination of um, services and companies and businesses or subsidiaries that work with those agencies to deliver um, advertising and media for, for big clients. And so I sit in one of those divisions, which is data and tech, and we build the products and sort of services and tools that help um, help agencies and then eventually the clients along the journey along media. Yeah, fine. So you're effectively helping those brands to help their clients. So you're not doing the work for the clients, you're doing the work for the brands that then works into the clients. Is that right? It's a bit of both. So okay. uh, our, our first our first point of contact is obviously the 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 brands, so the agencies. But in some cases, we can get pulled into work directly with client um, if there's something we need to build with them from a data science or tech standpoint. That that does happen as well. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Very good. Um, so I'm really excited about this topic because I think it's something that a lot of conversations kind of, if I'm being honest skirt around the edges of I think it's something that we're not that comfortable in talking about so I appreciate you coming on and being open to talking about it and obviously you you know I guess this has stemmed from some of the work that you've done and the papers that you've written previously and and stuff like this so I guess probably a good starting point so as you mentioned the the data science title you know five years ago it kind of exploded it burst onto the scene obviously there's so much talk around yes, you know, this has been a thing before, but we might have called it something different. And it's just kind of new tools that we use to kind of do the techniques with or whatever the case may be. But, you know, the fact it's been around for a long time, is it now just called something else? So where, in your opinion, has this whole science piece come from, if that makes sense? Oh, that definitely makes sense. I think for me, the the data science, the science part of data science comes in from in two aspects. So I think formally, um, if you look on Wikipedia, it comes from basically the merger of data analytics and computer science. So I think computer science brings in a major part of the science aspect and basically using really advanced techniques that we've been able to deliver over the last decades or so, um, of course, with neural nets, but also just machine learning that have been really large advances in, in academia in that field. So I think science comes in from the computer science part. Um, for me personally, I think science also comes in from a mindset. So it's not necessarily just, um, it's not necessarily just algorithms and, and that sort of research, but it's it's applying the scientific method and the scientific approach to a problem. So it's, it's going through the whole phases of observing, understanding, um, hypothesis testing, concluding, and then also communicating. So it's this agile process where we're always trying to learn and we're always trying to attack a problem from a very sort of science-oriented mindset, um, which means that you're trying to solve a problem as opposed to just um, chucking data at some algorithms, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. So you're you're basically saying that the the, the science part comes from, it's the methodology that's being used effectively to, to kind of yes. get, get an end result. Okay, perfect. I mean, that, that makes complete sense for someone that's non-technical like me, Annie, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> so I guess in terms of data science then, obviously, is it data? Is it science? Is it an amalgamation of the two? But more importantly, what's more important? Uh, again, a topic that's, um, I guess, <laughs> being debated um, back and forth for, for a while. But but what's your view? So I think it's 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 both. So obviously, it's 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 the combination of the two words because you need both. And why it's why it's moved on from sort of analytics, which I guess was the the early predecessor to it 
is that we have this massive sets of data um, that allows us to do really interesting work and apply these really interesting algorithms on. So the data, of course, is important. Um, the science piece, of course, I think is important too, because then it allows you to apply those algorithms, but also think about the problem more holistically. For me, I think the issue in recent past and the issue I've taken with where data science has gone as a field is that it's focused so much on data because we get petabytes and petabytes of data per day from every single source possible. Um, we've come to a place where we think all we need is data and we can just ignore the science part. And I think the, the part is that in parallel, we've had this massive loads of data coming at us. I forgot, I think if it's obviously an exponential growth over time. Um, and then there's been massive leaps on the algorithmic side. And so I think the thought process has been, if you just make those algorithms more easily accessible, um, all you do is throw data at it. And that's all you need to solve a problem. And that's, I think, we're missing the science piece when it comes to that, because you're missing the thought and making sure that the data fits the, the problem, that the data um, is actually representative of the problem that you're trying to solve. And I think that's where I, I struggle a bit um, for... Not, not to knock knack Kaggle at, at, at all, but I've spoken to a few Kaggle grandmasters and the, the thing that really concerns me is when I talk to them is, I, I don't care about the data. I don't care about the problem. All I need to do is use a boosted algorithm, tune some metrics and I'm good to go. And that to me is a very bad mindset because it it leaves holes in many, many places. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that also means that you're not probably applying data science in the right way. And I think companies are learning that. I'm sure you're seeing that right now. I think in your first podcast, you talked about how people are just, oh, we need the data scientists. No one actually sits and thinks, do I actually need a data scientist? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy, to be honest. I mean, the amount of, especially, like you said, three, four years ago, I'd, I'd go into a meeting with an organization that was looking to hire. And I would say, right, so just talk me through it. I don't want to talk lingo or tech or technologies yeah. or what i'm not bothered about what you want this person to do i want you to talk me through how we've got to this point and what you're hoping for this person to achieve yeah and i'd say eight times out of ten i was saying you don't need a data scientist yeah. you need you need a, a strong analyst but yes. you know it was it was cool it was cool to hire data scientists it's still cool to hire, hire data scientists and i think you know yeah. we're in this place now where businesses especially that are on the start of that journey yeah. It's become, and I've, you know, you probably hear me say this in almost every podcast. I need to probably get some new lingo, but um, you know, it's become this, it's become this thing where most organisations they they want to start their journey with data and analytics, and therefore they jump straight to data science, machine learning, yeah. AI. They've often not got the foundations in place and all of yeah. that type of stuff. So there's, there's obviously so much more to it than than that. Um, and obviously yeah. it's good there's someone like you in the industry kind of saying, look, yeah, we, it's not just a case of having data and sticking it into a model or an algorithm. You know, there's much more thought process behind it than that. And I think it's ironic because when I speak to organizations, that's the way they attract talent is exactly that. You know, have you got you know, experience with these skills within these techniques and technologies? And if you have, yeah. that's good enough for us. And yeah. then they quickly realize, hmm. There's a lot more of the softer stuff that these people might be missing. So you mentioned communication is one of the part of that kind of scientific methodology. And yeah. that's where there's a bit of, you know, I guess, um, 
debate in the industry around do data scientists need to be able to tell stories and communicate better? Well, yeah, they, of, of course they do to a certain extent, you know, so it's, yeah. we're kind of on this kind of cycle of, you know, do we, don't we, what are we trying to achieve? What are we not trying to achieve? Which obviously is, um, is interesting, right? But it's, it's great that you've got someone like yourself in the industry saying there's more to it than that. It's more to it than just building the best algorithm because, you absolutely, know, yeah. So moving on. So obviously the piece that you wrote around how data is seen as a commodity for the use mm-hmm. of machines, I read that and that, that was kind of in, intriguing. And I guess just for the context for the audience, you know, I guess you were exploring the question of, of bias, right? And, and where machines ultimately learn those biases from. Um, yes. just, just give the, the audience a kind of a bit of context on the paper and what the purpose of it was and, you know, why you decided to write it and all that type of stuff. Right. So the, the, the genesis of the picture paper actually came from us as a data science team talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, over the summer, it was something that really, I personally feel very passionate about and something that I wanted to talk to my team about. Um, and where this of course landed to because we're all data scientists is what, how does this show up in data science? How does this show up in the work that we do? Um, and the first place that it goes to is obviously data bias, then also, also training a model. Um, and so I think it's widely acknowledged that bias exists in data. It's, it's a field that I think many people in market research or in survey surveying kind of understand that there's there's bias in, in data collection and, and bias in, in data in general. I think what then happens is it stops at that point. It's like, yes, there's bias. Okay, good. Um, but we'll still continue with the with the model and we'll still continue training it and, and hoping that it turns out okay. Um, and what we realize is that 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 has massive effects both financially but also sort of ethically and so the piece was mainly understanding how when treating data as a commodity and forgetting about the bias and forgetting about the 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 source of the data how that negatively impacts a model when not taken into account so there's tons of examples of this i think um, it's been a huge topic in the media given the recent um firing or or let go of Timnit Gebru. Obviously that's something along the same lines of um, models can go wrong when you don't actually pay attention to what you're feeding it. And so the, the things that we talked in the paper was, I think a few years ago, Microsoft tried to train a bot on Twitter. Um, and I think in under 24 hours, it became super racist because you're feeding it Twitter wow. data and and the internet has trolls. So <laughs> with, with the combination of it, the internet being the internet and the fact that you're just training a model solely on data, the bot became ridiculously racist, sexist, everything is um, in a short span of time. And I think Microsoft did the smart thing to pull it. But the fact that that wasn't even the thought process that maybe this isn't the best data set, maybe this isn't the right way to train a model um, for public release, I think that doesn't happen. And that's kind of what we're trying to call, have a call to action for. And that's certainly the call to action within my own team is like, think before implementing, like make sure everything makes sense. Um, use your debiasing tools, but also make sure that the, the data suits the question you're asking. Um, and that has business implications more than just like ethical ones as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess there's a couple of things that I'd love to try and kind of unpack f- from that. How do you get to that point where the data that you have is inherently somehow biased in some way, shape or form? And, and I guess, what does the process look like of trying to figure out 
if this is a the right data and two you know are the yeah. biases in it and how do you kind of get rid of that to kind of train the models better if you want to call it that absolutely um the first part i think is quite easy because data is just collected from people right so if you think about the twitter example you're feeding it twitter data and so um, that certainly is not representative language in general because of the 140 cases. That means that that's not necessarily how people speak. Um, but also the, the types of people that are tweeting are not necessarily representative of the, of the human population, right? I, I'm not active on Twitter. I, and there are lots of people not active on Twitter. Yep. Um, so that kind of comes in a sampling bias in the sense that what you're looking at doesn't represent the actual, the underlying state of what you're trying to model. Um, there also comes into the fact that in, in one of the examples, I think in the States, they built a model that was meant to automate uh, judgment decisions for parole. And the data that they used for that was historical decisions by the judges. And that in itself has bias because the people making those decisions are biased. So those biases carry out. Um, and so if you do have, I think there's known um, facts that, you know, they, they bias towards races, of course, and they also, there's even like temporal biases. So like judges who who um, sentence at lunchtime are more likely to give a negative response than those who who sentence right after a meal or, or, wow. or something like that. So there are these sorts of things that need to be taken into account and, and they exist. So it's just, it's just they exist by the pure fact that you're collecting data on people and you're not collecting all data on all people. So um, they can manifest in many ways. Hmm. Okay. So how, how do you get around that then? Because I imagine that, you know, I, I understand the concept of, you know, just by merely collecting data, you know, yeah. the, the, the sample, the, 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 the volume, uh, the group that you're getting it from, whatever the case may be. If it's not large enough, it's not going to be an accurate reflection of society in regards to that problem or whatever you're trying to solve. But, you know, I guess it's probably much more difficult on the flip side of that to try and figure out ways to to kind of make it more accurate, I guess. Yeah. So that's definitely, I think, a longstanding issue. And there is no single solution because I think it's a case by case um, question. There's no way there, there are many great debiasing tools out there. So they're tools that will tell you whether your, your sample is representative of something. Um, there are tools that will tell you um, to, to shift the distributions so or shift your weights to be more representative of census, but that doesn't necessarily help all of the things. So it wouldn't help in the parole case because the underlying issue there is just the decisions were wrong themselves, the labels. So it's a supervised learning example where you're training it to incorrect labels. So I think in that sort of case, it almost becomes, should you be modeling this at all? It's more of a question of, is this the right place where you should be automating? Is this the right thing that should be automated? And if it is, do we then want to, as modelers, impose the right, the way that we want it to go in society? And that becomes, that's becomes where it becomes difficult because that's subjective. So you could take that data and say, well, this judge is known to not be ist in any form, so racist, sexist, um, biased in any form. So let's overweight their samples and downweight the other ones. So you can do that, but that becomes a subjective call that is not necessarily one that many people who start off um, in machine learning are willing to make because you A, need to have an understanding of the field and understanding of the consequences, which is why the Kaggle example really bothers me because 
um, people just think that you don't need to know the underlying subject or have an SME or speak to the people that are using it. Um, and that process just doesn't exist hmm. <laughs> or it doesn't often exist, I should say. Yeah, I guess with the, obviously what you're talking about there, it being subjective, you know, we're starting to almost creep into the realms of the ethics piece, right? Yeah. Um, but I guess if if we as an industry are looking at that and making decisions based on that, this, I mean, this is just me thinking out loud, by the way, but is there, are there not potential biases there in in terms of, you know, how a person thinks about something, if it's subjective Absolutely. and, you know, so you might tell, as you said, using the, the, the study in the States on, on the court cases, well, yeah, well absolutely. I don't, I don't agree with that for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, you know, I guess there's yeah. a certain element of, of bias somewhere in that. So it just seems a really tricky, it's almost like a minefield really on how you kind of combat this. Absolutely. And I think in that particular case, like comes back to the first question of why, why do you feel the need to automate it? You can certainly use this sort of thing to inform the judge to say like, Hey, um, maybe this is not like you you seem to be historically doing these sorts of things or like this is what it looks like across the general field of of judges in these sorts of situations. So it can be an informative guide. It's when the strong push to automate everything and take out human judgment um, becomes problematic because you're trusting the sole decision and judgment on a machine that may not have learned properly. And not that human judgment is correct, but that's still um, up to the, like it's, it's something that can be, adjusted for yeah um, no. if that makes sense yeah no I, I, absolutely makes sense so i guess the alternative then if it is something that's subjective to a certain extent what you're saying is the question should be do we even need to model this at all so yeah so if that's the question what what's the alternative to, to that is it to do it manually um not to do it manually but not use it for an automation like use it as an information guide so like right. i think the, the the strong push to take out the human element um, doesn't need to exist in all cases and not everything needs to be automated, right? I think the same is true for the industrial revolution. Like lots of parts of the factory can be automated, but there are other pieces which can't. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes you do need judgment that that only a human can make. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I guess in terms of the kind of these beliefs and biases that we often find in their data, mm-hmm. I guess to the point to which we find that data and we understand that there might be biases there. Are they often there kind of purely accidental kind of subconsciously in your opinion, or, you know, I guess, I guess there's no one there maliciously kind of, you know, hacking the data and putting biases in. Right. So it's just a a general thing that happens, you know, by the way of, of of kind of subconscious bias in, in people's lives, I guess. Yeah. It's, I don't think anyone's maliciously like adding bias to data, but I think people are are not careful when designing how data is collected. So um, you, when you do like a survey, most people are quite good at saying, I want it to be representative of age and gender, but in a particular case, maybe you also want it to be re- representative of ethnicity if the question has to do with culture or something that might answer the question. Um, I think it, it is in designing of your experiment and designing of your data collection process where um, if you did that a little bit more carefully, then you may subvert some of the biases. And maybe it's not one data source, it's multiple data sources you need to look at um, or multiple avenues. I think that's where um, where you can mitigate it in a more reasonable manner. 
Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about here, really, something that probably can be addressed and fixed is that, you know, we're probably not paying enough attention to A, the Mm -hmm. questions that we're asking and B, the audience that we're asking them to. We need to probably think about that a little bit more carefully. Absolutely. I mean, Mm -hmm. so I've I've done models um, of, of say, a UK car. So the UK autos are modeling how people purchase cars in the UK. And the underlying survey we used was biased towards, I think, 50% of the survey was um, women over 65. And because it was a mass general survey across all categories, across all fields, um, this clearly wasn't good. So our model kept saying that uh, everyone wanted to buy a Jaguar, which in reality <laughs> is not true because <laughs> I don't think from the numbers that that is correct. But because of the people that were in the survey, um, they were older ladies who had Jaguars. So that's kind of, you know, that that sort of thought process of actually this is not right because it was not a syndicated survey that covered mm-hmm. the, the right field. So that happens. I guess... I know obviously there's there's numerous cases out there and you've touched upon a few of them where there's these things that have gone bad, um, gone yeah. wrong. Obviously the the Twitter bot thing was um, you know, a bit of an epic fail, but um yes. and obviously, you know, the the age old story of the Amazon trying to automate its hiring and the whole gender bias thing that was just crazy. Um yes. are there any examples that you can give us, Annie, of you know, and, and I presume they're probably never as bad as, as that, right? Because they probably made the news no. if they were. But, um, but you know, that happened in the the real business world that you come across where, you you know, you have to fix or that you've seen or, or heard of before. Um, so I think so the, the, the example that I just gave, like, where, again, it doesn't, it's not, it's not turning out a racist spot, but it. <laughs> It's costing the it's costing the the client money because they're not targeting the right people. They're not addressing the right audience. What they think about their customers is actually wrong. So then, in that case, it becomes a business um, liability because they they haven't understood who they think that they should understand. Um, and without that, then our, like if we were not to think about how the the underlying survey that generated our model, we would have just said to them target 70 year old women in in so-and-so town because that's what our model says but because we know that that's not reasonable because we know that historically that's not correct and the data is not um sufficient for the purpose you make adjustments for it um but i think when you don't think about those things and you just chase the metric um like a good example of that is if you were to think about category purchases and just looked at this year like that is not representative of any of history Right. And some of it may continue, but some of it may not. But this entire year is it's quite the throw up. So using 2020 data is not necessarily the best idea Absolutely. in many cases. It's an interesting point because um, obviously we host events and things like that. And actually at the start of the year, when we just went into lockdown, we held um, we were supposed to hold the roundtable event face to face. And obviously we did it virtually. And, you know, that mm-hmm. was in the midst of it when the world seemingly was on fire and no one knew what was happening. But that was something that got brought up straight away. Right. Is that, yeah. you know most people you get to the end of a year and you kind of you bank that data and that goes in the drawer and it's you know a a forecast and a trend for what may happen next year or the year after and and people were saying well so what do you do in this situation because it's it's obviously going to be so skewed is it a case of you keep it in the top drawer for the next pandemic or you know do you throw it away or you know so it's 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 so interesting um okay so in terms of the differences in 
because this this is something that I think probably plays into into that a little bit. Um, talking about how people learn and probably couldn't ask a better person for you coming from academia and then into the commercial world, but in terms of how students in university are learning, you know, especially in the realm of data science and what yeah. that actually means, because I think the expectations are so out of whack. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're in university, they're learning and they're in an environment where they've got a lot of time. The data sets are perfect. Um yeah they've you know so on and so forth and they get into the real world and they land and actually what they realize is they, they don't have access to the data they've got to figure out where it is yeah. it's not perfect they don't have six weeks to build a model that's 100 accurate and actually no one yeah. wants them to do that anyway and then they're yeah. kind of like wow like what is this place why you know what why has no one spoke to us about this before so i, I guess you know you couple that with the fact that data science is now the cool thing to be doing and every business is trying to do it. And often I don't think that many have, as I mentioned before, have a real strategy around why it's an obligation that they should do it. Um, And it just, you know, that's immediately where they focus their attention because I think that's where they perceive the value to be at that end. I'm not saying that it's not, but there's a whole host of things that should happen before you get to that point. Um, You know, when you factor all of that in, in, then you get into the real world, like like you did coming from academia, I guess, you know, is all of that, you know, when you're talking about having to go and find the data, clean the data, prep the data, so on and so forth, is that then even the job of a data scientist? And then when you strip all that back, is it any wonder that these biases can sometimes creep in when they're, you know, they're pro- I mean, I don't know, you probably have to tell me, but I doubt that they teach you about bias in university, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Yeah. So I think that's actually a really good point and and something that's probably that I'll say that I'm not sure is representative of everyone, but one of the in recruiting. So I've been recruiting for the last five or six years for roles. One of the things that I really find, and this is a sweeping generalization, is that those with ML data science degrees, the by far the thing that they always say is, oh, I only care about the algorithms. Data cleaning is just a thing that has to be done. Um, and I don't, I don't really want to pay attention to it. And so we, when we do a test, the first thing they'll do is chuck it at a PCA. So throw, put a PCA on top of it, do some dimensionally re- reduction, throw it into some sort of model, um, SVM, random forest, whatever, optimize some metric, and then here you go, problem solved. Um, when the original question was, find the relationships in the data that... Um, that could help you understand, like um, help the client understand like the driving features for sales or something like that. Um, And I think for me, that's where sort of an ML data science degree almost goes a bit wrong because what they end up getting is is a very generalist view of everything data science. And as I'm sure you know, there's so much in data science that like they can cover and have to cover. And so they don't go into anything in depth. They don't necessarily teach the critical thinking. So rightly or wrongly, I've always been historically biased to people with academic PhDs um, in some sort of science-related field. Because for me, the the critical thinking and the wanting to understand is much more important than being able to optimize a model. Because that, to me, is a tool that can be taught. And if, if you're um, if you're somewhat versed in programming, then that's something you can pick up quite easily. It's it's the critical teaching piece, the critical thinking piece that um, I always look for. And that's how we try to 
make our tests as well. Um, and I'm sure that's not true of every single case and every single person hiring. That is certainly true for what when, when I like to hire because of what you said. Um, in the sort of industry that we are, there aren't necessarily people telling us what needs to be done. A lot of the ideation has to come from ourselves. And so without that sort of grounding and thought process, then it's, it's hard to ideate. You kind of are lost in the woods and that's completely fair for a, a fresh, a new person to, to be that lost um, because they haven't gone through that process. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, and I guess when you throw on top of that, the fact that there are organizations out there that they're at the start of this journey, they don't necessarily want to go and hire someone maybe like yourself who can mm -hmm. shape this for them and build that team, but they don't want to go and, hire a consultancy to kind of put all them foundations in place and give them the roadmap. And then what often happens is exactly what we've just spoke about, right? You know, they'll yeah. hire, they'll go and hire a, a junior, maybe even entry level data scientist to come in and it's like, right, this is your job now. And you yeah. know, that coupled with the fact that they've never had to be in an environment like that, where they, yeah. you know, they're just given data and they have to put it into a model and that, and that's it. And, you know, I'm not, just want to be clear i'm kind of not saying that there's n not room for people studying oh. data science at university absolutely not absolutely but, you know yeah. i think there needs to be probably a little bit more context and especially when you absolutely. strip it you strip it all back and the reason you know for example you're doing what you're doing is to give the brands that you work with better insight into their clients customers right so their customers yeah. can make money you know so it all comes back yeah. to the business. And I think that's, yeah. that's the piece that we're kind of really missing. And especially, you know, I kind of, to be honest, I have to agree with you on the PhD front a little bit, because I think that, and again, you know, I've, I've probably been misinterpreted on this a few times, so I need to be clear, but I'm not saying that people with a PhD aren't valuable because of course they are, but, you yeah. know, I guess in the sense of what they learn at university is, you know, the, the job of the PhD really is, pushing the boundaries of possibility like looking for that yes. next big thing and the reality is is that most organizations can't even find the data <laughs> so yes. you know so so yes. we're kind of not ready for that as an industry really is kind of where yeah. my stance is on, on that so, and I think that's where some of the more business softer skill critical thinking like you said all of that you know more, the more logical business focused type stuff is really yeah an ingredient that that we're missing and I've, I've had a few people on the podcast that have, have kind of said they feel that we should be teaching kind of data and uh, analysis and science and stuff like that to everyday traditional subjects so if you study in business give them that skill set as well you know as like an extra yeah. foundation course or whatever the case may be so there's a lot of debate around this at the moment i guess um but it's no wonder then why these biases are happening when you have you know you put people in that, that environment and there's no kind of constraints or support i guess absolutely and and just to clarify i also don't think that a data science <laughs> uh, masters is a bad idea i just i think you're right it's the fit you need to understand what your company needs and what what that person is able to do because it's not just putting a junior entry level person in in a role with no support no data strategy, no data, no tech is is not going to work for anyone. Absolutely. Um, it's not just about building models, right? I mean, it'd be yeah. great for a lot of people if the role was just, you know, you come in, someone gives you a data set, you put it into a model and, yeah. you know, it's a production line of that. I'm, I'm sure there'll be hundreds of people that would be excellent at that job. Um, exactly. But the reality is we kind of need more, I, I guess, is, is really what the point is. So um, yeah. I know we spoke about the ethics part earlier and around how that kind of fits into the the bias piece but yeah. 
I guess, from your perspective, how do you manage that in terms of kind of internally within your team or where you've been previously, you know, in terms of bias and, and ethics and it being subjective? Because again, I, I guess that can be a, a bit of a, a tricky situation as a, as a leader in the space. Yes. Um, I think one of the things that our company likes to stress and group M in general is, and, and cliche as it sounds, it's actually quite a good sort of mo- mantra. Um, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So it's just that awareness piece. So like, it, it's just, what I want to stress is just stop and think. And that's, for me, it's it's critical modeling. It's not just, it's about thinking about the problem and, and understanding the use case and understanding the data and then finding the best solution. Um, oftentimes data scientists go, oh, I'm just gonna make a neural net with like crazy architecture and 20 different like this, that, or the other. And I mean, that just doesn't need to happen most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's just the mindfulness of the problem and, and the stop and think attitude and, and actually sit and talk and think about the problem with, with others in the team, with the end client, with everyone, understand the business case because maybe you're overcomplicating things with your um, with your recurrent neural net. Uh, maybe they just want like a linear regression. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Do you, I mean, you may be closer to this than I am. And to be honest, you know, it's probably my bad because I, I probably should ask more of these questions, but you know, there's so much debate and different types of topics within the industry, but this is not something, obviously the ethics piece is, is huge, right? But I don't think we've ever really got into much granular detail actually about what that means. So in terms of bias and the critical thinking around stopping to think, you know, is this, is yeah. this the right thing to do? Uh, you know, we look at, is the data right? So on and so forth. Is there much happening in the industry and like within organizations in terms of, you know, I guess policies or processes to stop that happening in your opinion? I think, I think, yes. I think like, I I certainly think that group M and the agencies are going towards that sort of mentality of like um, in, in the mantra of making advertising work better for people, like taking into account privacy. So, you know, right now we have, essentially as scary as it is all the information about everyone because of cookies so online information of course um but do we necessarily think that we need to use all that information do we need that level of granularity um that is a question that like the leadership is asking um not only because they are disappearing in a year but also just from an ethical standpoint um do we do we need to do that do we need to go down that level um just because we have um and i think in the wider data science it certainly is i think I mentioned sort of the current situation with Timnit Gebru, like her her letting go or her firing. I'm not I'm not up to date on the the current status of what it is, um, but the fact that the that's something that the industry is paying attention to, and actually that I think it was like 1,500 Google's um, employees actually signed a petition against, means that people are aware and they're understanding that it's not it's not just this this thing to say to be politically correct or because, you know, it's a good buzzword to be, you know, on this movement. It is actually having negative impact on the way we do things. Mm. Um, I do think it's something that we're, we're starting to understand the impacts of. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's like anything, right. You know, the, the more data and opportunity you've got, there's also potential risks. And I think um, a lot of stakeholders and, and leadership figures and execs are now starting to realize, you know, what was once a 
probably a mindset of, oh, great, look at all this data we've got. Look how we can use that to target people better. And now they're also probably stopping and thinking, but what does that mean? You know, from yeah. a privacy standpoint, we certainly don't want to get fined. And, you know, the bigger picture piece of that is brand reputation and exactly. so on and so forth, right? And, so, and even from a business standpoint, like, is it actually effective in the majority of cases, right? Like, um, mm. that's something that they're also understanding that isn't necessarily the case. I mean, I don't love cookies following me all across the internet. <laughs> the same ad. Don't yeah. think the majority of people do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, Annie, thank you very much. It's been an insightful conversation. I guess if there's anyone that wants to reach out um, and kind of pick your brains on this at all or, you know, discuss the paper or discuss biases or, you know, racist bots or whatever the case may be, um, what's the best way for them to kind of get hold of you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn um, and then also anyhow, any.how at groupm.tech. So um, send me an email and I'll, I'll try to respond. Nice. <laughs> but I, I love it, these conversations and thank you so much for having me. No problem at all. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been uh, very insightful. I'm sure uh, there'll be a lot of listeners for this. So um, yeah, appreciate it and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these too. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.